Howdy. Good to see you this morning. I'm Josh. I'm one of the ministers. If we have not met, welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that we are together today. I'd say, can I get an amen? But as a friend just said, I think we're already amened out. So can I get an oh yeah? Thanks. See, there's always a workaround. That's good. Hey, we're jiving into part three of our Advent series called Jesus Behind Everything. We'll be there in just a moment. And if you want to get prepped for the text, jump in to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Yes, we're going back to chapter 9 because there's some stuff there that we have to see. We didn't get a chance to last week, so we're going to be there again. Today we're going to look at what may be the most obvious of all of the Christmas traditions. Now, you say obvious, and I say obvious for this reason. It's because you know it when you see it. In fact, it is often the very first thing you notice or the first sign that the Christmas season has begun. You say, what is it? I'm going to tell you what I think it is, at least. It's when that first neighbor on your street decides it's time to put up Christmas lights. Yeah, they may start in January, but you know it's coming eventually, right? And then other people begin to add Christmas lights to their house. And and so lights become this synonym for Christmas. We put lights on everything. We put lights on trees. We put lights on houses, on cars. I've even seen people put lights on their pets, which is funny, on a whole other level. See a little schnauzers blinking as they're walking by. I get tickled by that. So this is part of what it means for a lot of us to experience the fullness of of Christmas. But here's the question. Where in the world did we come up with the idea to put miniature lights? I mean, think about this, okay? It would be weird if you did not grow up with this. Why in the world do we take little miniature lights, cover it over our bushes, our front doors? Why do we bring a tree inside, put it on top of the tree? Why do we put it all over these places? Where did that tradition come from? So I want to take you back a couple thousand years to the origin of this tradition, and then I want to peel back even further and show how this tradition ultimately points to someone behind the tradition. So let's begin with the history. Where did it begin? Perhaps the very first place that we see the, the roots or the embers, if you will, but I'm ch- of this tree lighting and all the lighting goes back a couple thousand years to pagans who would light the annual Yule log. How many of you know what a Yule log is? Show of hands. Yeah, exactly. It's not something we do. So let me tell you, the Yule log is just a giant log that they would put inside of their home fireplace or the community's fireplace or fire pit And it was the time of year during the darkest day or days of the year, that's when they would light it. Now, many people will tell you that they would believe that if you could count the sparks, the more sparks you could count within the first few moments of lighting it, ah, the greater your luck in the next year, the more sparks. Isn't that nice? I guess if you have poor eyesight, not so much luck, so not good for you. You're unlucky in a lot of ways. Now, they did it during the darkest time of year, specifically around what is called the winter solstice. The winter solstice is the shortest daylight day of the year. It's when the nighttime gets longer, darker, and you have fewer hours of daylight. Now, the ancient pagans believed the cause was not the cosmology and the moving of the earth and the planets and all that. They believed the cause was that their sun god had gotten sick. And so couldn't hang out in the day quite as much. 
So evidently the sun god got sick in the winter. I mean, if that isn't funny to me, anyone else, that is great. So they forgot their Tamiflu, they didn't get their flu shot, whatever it was, and so they would light the Yule log as a way of almost like, we believe in you, Tinkerbell, let's clap for our god, right? And the hope was that God would come back and be stronger, and God would, and everything's great. That is the origin of where people began to light lights during the darkest season of the year. Now, fast forward. Jesus has come on the scene. He has died. He's resurrected. And now, word has begun to spread that there is one who is God, but he doesn't get sick in the winter. In fact, he is not only more powerful than germs, he is more powerful than death, for he has now conquered it. And people begin to light candles. They begin to put up lights to remember that we do not serve a God who is dead or sick, but a God who has defeated death itself. And so Martin Luther, the great reformer, one night, I shared this with you, on the way home, looking up at the stars, he's, he's putting together a sermon, but he's watching the stars above the trees, and so enraptured by what he saw, he goes home, puts a tree in his living room, and he attaches candles to its branches and quickly lights it, and the children see it because he wanted them to see just a glimpse of what he saw, the brilliance of the night sky. Fast forward a couple hundred years later, now we're at the end of the 16, uh, 16th century, the 1700s, and we get to this point of saying, why in the world do we have lights on trees? We got that, it's Martin Luther, but what about lights in the windows? Show of hands, how many of you have ever had a candle in your window at Christmas time? Go ahead, hold your hand up, look around for a moment here. Do you know why? Here's the history. During a very tumultuous time in Ireland, there was a conflict between the Catholic Church and the Irish Church, or the Church of Ireland. The Church of Ireland was under the control or leadership of the Anglican Church. That's the Church of England. The King of England was the leader of that church. The Pope is the leader of the Catholic Church. Do you think they got along? No. And so now you have two churches, Catholic Church and and the Church of England in, or Church of Ireland in Ireland, and they begin to have a conflict. And the Church of Ireland begins to persecute the Catholic priests, telling them they can no longer be priests and they must leave Ireland. Some chose not to leave. Instead, they hid, lived in secret. And during Christmas, devout Catholics would take a candle, light it, put it in their window, leave their door unlocked, and the Catholic priests could secretly come get inside, close the windows. They would provide mass for the Christians there, and they would receive a meal from their parishioners. That's where that began. And it became a symbol of, this is a place where you're safe. Isn't that a beautiful symbol? Well, what about Christmas lights with electric going through them? Well, let's talk about that. Fun fact, the very first dude to ever string Christmas lights or lights outside, Thomas Edison, 1880. He's the guy who did it. He did it outside of his shop just to get a little more publicity, and it worked. Now, in 1882, the first man to string lights on a tree was a man who worked for him. His name is Edward Johnson. Edward Johnson took 80 little bulbs, and he hand-wired them together. They were red, white, and blue. He put them on a tree, and he put the tree on a pedestal in a front window of his parlor so everyone in the streets could see it. And on this pedestal, it would spin slowly. He invited a reporter over. The reporter was just blown away. A crowd gathers, and they take off like wildfire. Sorry, the pun. And so what they began to do, they tried to sell these. The problem is, in 1900, according to some numbers, you could buy Christmas lights for your tree. You could get a 
12, or a, a 16 strand, 16 lights on a strand, and it would cost you $12. You say, what's the big deal? That's the equivalent to $350 today. So how do you promote this? How do you get people to exchange one kind of tradition for another? Well, they did it in a variety of creative ways, including with this kind of advertisement. On the left, they're using candles. Children are running, screaming from the blazing inferno of their tree. Hey, family, if you don't want to deck the halls with flames and roast your children like a turkey, buy our bulbs, and they will sit under the tree enjoying their toys instead of running from it in flames. So do you want hell on earth or heaven on earth? That's the way they sold it, and it worked. Prices dropped, people bought them, and it spread. People now put them on all sorts of things. Now, I think it'd be kind of an interesting poll to take here this morning. Let's just do this real fast here. There's a debate in the Christian community that we've got to settle once and for all right here, right now. And here's the question. Do you prefer white lights or multicolored lights? Now, if you are for white lights, let's see some hands. Look around at the age of those holding their hands up. Hands down. If you prefer colored lights, multicolored lights, hands up. Now, look again. Do you notice an age difference, generally speaking? So we are a divided church. Today, let's try to unify around the true light, shall we? So this is the history. This is just a brief snapshot of where it came from, but let, let's dig a little deeper, shall we? See, see, it did not begin with a Yule log. This idea of light did not begin with someone stringing lights on a tree. It began in those opening verses of the book of Beginnings, when God said, let there be light. The ancient Jewish rabbis said the first thing God did was distinguish between light and darkness. And the rest of the Bible, he is simply teaching us to know the difference between the two. So he gives us the Ten Commandments and the 613 corresponding laws. God saying, this is light, this is darkness. Walk in the light, not in the darkness. But we could not do it, nor did we want to. And so finally God said, I will not send you words about the light, but I will send you the word who is the light. And in Isaiah chapter 9, he tells us how that changed everything. In verse 1, it says this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. We'll explain all this in a moment. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great, say that word with me, light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Today, I want to show you Jesus behind everything and Jesus behind our tradition of light. Because this passage shows us three things about what Christmas and lights in particular mean. Number one, write this down. We're going to move quickly. Christmas and lights in particular tell us. Number one, the world is dark. Now, I know that's one of the all-time no-dust statements, isn't it? It's like, well, thanks, Diggs. I could have stayed home if that's the answer to what we're talking about here. But it's more than just the world is dark. Did you notice it says those who walk in darkness. It's not simply that the world itself is dark, but we ourselves walk in it. 
We are surrounded by it. We are influenced by it as well, aren't we? In fact, here's the scary thing. We walk in darkness so long, our eyes and our very souls become accustomed to the darkness, doesn't it? You ever walk into a dark room? You stub your toe? Ah! You bump into a wall? Oh! Give yourself a few minutes and all of a sudden your eyes begin to adjust and you can see the details of the room. What was once very dark and uncomfortable to you becomes familiar and you're like, I can navigate this pretty well. Until the middle of the night when you have to get up and use the bathroom, right? You go to the bathroom, flip on that light, what happens? Ah! Your face is like the Nazi in the Indiana Jones film. It just starts to melt because of the light, doesn't it? A little dramatic, but perhaps we felt that from time to time. It's not because the light is particularly brighter in that moment than earlier in the day. It's that our eyes are not accustomed to the light because we walk in the darkness. The world is dark, but he says it's even worse than you think. The very first word in verse 1 is nevertheless. Nevertheless. In other words, because of. However, he's referring back to chapter 8. He said something. It's not only that we walk in the darkness, but look at what it says in chapter 8, verse 21. It says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And look upward. Will curse their king and their God. And notice this next line. Then... They will look toward the... Wait, where are they looking? The earth. When everything is bad, where do they look for their solutions? The earth. The Apostle Paul, who was studied, he was very well versed in the ancient Greek philosophers, as well as a Jewish rabbi, tells us that the Greeks thought that the solution to the brokenness of the world was the intellect. If we simply got smarter, if we studied more, if we had the right degrees, if we had science, that would fix all of our problems. The Jews of Jesus' day did not believe that it was the intellect that would save us. Rather, they believed it was the right political military leader. They were waiting for Messiah, God's chosen. But they did not believe Messiah would die on a cross. They believed Messiah would kill the enemies of God. This is why the Jews as a group, rejected Jesus. He did not fit what they expected. So for them, it was about if we elect the right candidate, if we have the right leaders in office, then everything will work out. Darkness will be dispelled. The Gentiles, the Greeks said it is the intellect. The Jews said it is politics. It is leadership. And for those in Isaiah's day, they said it's neither of those. If you go back two verses, it'll say, seek what the mediums say. Talk to the spiritists. In other words, go inward. It's all about spirituality, not religion. I'm spiritual. It's about this new age understanding of things. That's what will save the world. In other words, it's worse than you think. The world is not only broken, but our only solutions lead to more brokenness. By the way, do those solutions sound familiar to enlightened 21st century Americans? We look to the intellect to political leaders, and even to this weird, vague spirituality to save us. How's it working? The world is no better than it was because the darkness cannot dispel darkness. Those who walk in darkness cannot look to the darkness itself for the solutions. The first thing we need to hear at Christmas is that the world is dark, but cheer up, dear sisters and dear brothers, for the next thing it says is simply this. 
Though the world is dark, the second thing we learn is that Christmas is an assault on that darkness. Now, see, listen, the fact that you don't cheer for that means we don't quite get the point here, do we? It's not because of the eloquence of the speaker. It's because of the reality of this message. Do you understand? Many of us think of Christmas simply as a sentimental, saccharine sweet. Oh, it just makes me feel warm and cozy. Do you understand? That is not what Christmas is. Christmas was the beach assault from the kingdom of heaven into the realm of darkness and it will not be defeated. Do you understand what is happening? Come on, come on, wake up. Listen to me for a moment here. The enemy that hates you and hates me went out of his way to stop God's redemption story. How did he do it? He worked through a man who was insecure but powerful named Herod. And when Herod heard there was one who might oppose his rule, what does Herod do? Does he sit back and say, oh, but it's Christmas. Let's just, oh, it's okay. He says, I will kill anyone I have to to get rid of the light. And a whole town of parents lost their little boys because of it. Let us never pretend that Christmas is just this sentimental season where we warm ourselves by emotional thoughts. This is the season where heaven invaded hell on earth and brought light. It is an assault on the enemy. When we gather on Sunday, we don't simply do so to feel good. We come here to celebrate that God did not leave us in the darkness, but he assaulted the darkness and said, I will now rescue my people. This is what it says next. Those who walked in great darkness have seen a great light. Next slide. On those living in the land of deep darkness. I love that. It's not just dark. It's deep darkness. A light has dawned. Do you hear me now? No matter how dark your moment is today, light is here and the light has a name and that name is Jesus. He was born in obscurity, but he now reigns in glory and he will return as the king of kings, not as some little child able to be beaten by a king, but he will be the one that every king bows his knee to. Christmas is an assault on the darkness. That word, by the way, for light is the Hebrew word nagah. Everyone say nagah. It's, it's this idea of just like a shining light, like an explosion of light. And do you notice the darkness does not create the light? The darkness does not even discover it like, well, we found it under this rock. It's right there. The light came to us. The light burst forth. And even those in deepest darkness... As though in a dark room the light came on, they could not escape it. He's here. It's that moment when nighttime realizes that morning has won and darkness now must flee. Christmas lights, when you see them, don't you think just sentimentality? The world is dark. Christmas is an assault on that darkness. And are you ready for the last point? Say yes. Here we go. Jesus' light will win. When you see this, when you see these lights, yes, they're pretty. This is not just to say, oh, isn't it nice? Every time you see this, you remember that Jesus' light wins. The darkness doesn't get to win. 
The story does not end in entropy and destruction and the silence of the stars. The end is the return of the king of kings. And I want to show you how this text tells us that. It's actually in verse 1. Let's go back now a verse. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Notice that it will be. See, Isaiah is writing to a group of people 800 years roughly before Jesus is born. And the people of Israel are in deep distress. They are being pressured from the north by those who hate God and want to take them over. And he says, it's a dark time, but there will come a time where there is no more gloom for those who were in distress. He goes on to say, in the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, why in the world? Let's do a little map study here, shall we? This is a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel during the Old Testament, during roughly Isaiah's day. The borders shifted over time a bit, but this is roughly it. Here's what I want you to see. Do you notice where Zebulun and Naphtali are? They're in the north. Why is that significant? When Israel came into the promised land and took the 12 tribes, they first had to dispel the different nations within their borders. They had particular difficulty up in the north. But even though they were able to gain a footing, it was from the north that outside empires would come and attempt to take them over. And it was from the north that places like Assyria and Babylon, does anyone recognize that name, came in and took over. Who experienced the fall of darkness first? Zebulun and Naphtali in the north experienced the first waves of the armies who came in and killed their wives and children. They experienced the first deportations of being enslaved people. They're the ones who hid as these enemies took over their land. They were the ones whose wives and daughters were taken, who were made to bear children. And so now they're not even a pure people, but they are an interbreeded people. Now those in the south, the other tribes, look upon Naphtali and Zebulun with disdain because they're not even pure breeds. They were the ones who experienced the darkness first. But here are the rest of the verse. Are you ready? But in the future, God will honor, wait, wait, not Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee of the nations. Where is that? It's right there. Why is this significant? This is where Jesus began his assault in his adult ministry. The place where darkness fell first, he pushes it out first. Do you understand where we're going here, family? See, I think too many of us come on Sundays and we have this superficial understanding. We believe God loves us in a generic sense, but me personally, no, there's too much darkness. God can heal us generically, but no, not me personally. And so 800 years before Jesus arrived on the scenes, God, through his prophet Isaiah, says, I am coming where the darkness struck first, where it got its foothold, and I will break it wide open. I will burst it out. The things that are darkest in your life that have the foothold first, God says, I am not a God defeated by that. I'm the God who runs to those dark places and defeats the darkness. And Christmas reminds us of this. 
He says, it's in the way of the sea. The way of the sea was the district around the Sea of Galilee. Galilee itself, that word Galilee, comes from the Hebrew word galil, which means circle or circuit, because that is a circular area. This is where Jesus would come. But here's the good news. Jesus' ministry began here. Light started here. But light did not stop here. Jesus will win, and Jesus' work Jesus' light will spread. This is the promise. In fact, John tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 4. In him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, I wish... For the world, we could get this in a new way to say, this isn't just some sentimental sermon. This is the promise that God wins. And through Jesus, the light of the world, darkness cannot overcome that light. And all week I've been struggling. How do I explain this beauty to you? And, and, and I'm going to try something. This is going to be cheesy. I know and some of you are going to roll your eyes, but it's the best I've got. Are you ready? I, here, here's what I've got. I've got Charlie Brown's Christmas tree for you. You say, how does this explain anything? Okay, bear with me. This was the first Christmas tree my wife and I owned when we got married. It's about this tall, which was great for the small apartment we lived in. And it, this picture makes it look a lot better than it is because we've worked really hard to reattach and refix things. This is Charlie Brown's tree when you look at it closely. Parts are being just barely held on. Some branches that broke off and kind of put back together. It's pretty janked and just not very impressive. Can we just take a self-assessment for a moment? If you and I were to sit down for a moment, if we were just to have a bone-honest conversation, how many of us in here would say, I feel like that? I'm not impressive. There are parts that are broken that you can't really tell because I've done my best to scotch tape them back together. There's nothing attractive. I don't even measure up to the average around me. What, what do I have to offer? And so what do we do with these little things at Christmas? We don't leave them this way, but we do this instead. And this doesn't even do justice for the in-person, but this little tree, the imperfections, all the things that were wrong with it, somehow when light is wrapped around it, the imperfections fade away and its beauty comes out. In fact, this is the tree every year that as a family we hang. It's upstairs in our room. We still have it. And we hang our ornaments about the coming of Jesus on this tree. Because when Jesus comes, he takes the worst and the darkest and the least perfect among us and he works in us. But unlike a tree whose lights can be taken off and whose lights at best cover up the imperfections, God's work is not simply an external one that we look good when we come on Sundays. His work comes inside of us and shines through us so much so that God himself, Jesus Christ, light himself, says these words. Now, not only am I light, but he says, you are the light of the world. And how is that possible, Jesus? Have you not seen me? He's like, because I work miracles. I enter the dark spaces and I don't simply cover over. I clean out and I bring light. And so now you, dear brothers and sisters, are the light of the world. I'm not telling you this. The original light is saying this. You are the light of the world. So, 
this year as you see Christmas lights, whether they're beautifully adorned or gaudy, may they remind you of the light that was prophesied and the light who has come and the light who will come again. May that give you the confidence to let your light shine because the light wins.